We are glad to welcome Dr. Margaret Morsey. She's a dermatopathologist with Karis Life Sciences. She serves as a medical director of the Maryland Laboratory. She's board certified in anatomic and clinical pathology, dermatopathology, and dermatology. As a faculty member of the Department of Dermatology at Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions, she served as director of the Division of Dermatopathology and led the fellowship training program in dermatopathology. Currently, she volunteers at the University of Maryland teaching dermatopathology to pathology residents. Please welcome Dr. Margaret Morrissey. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me to speak. I'm actually um, covering for Dr. Lisa Cohen, a colleague and friend who regrets that she's unable to be here today. Um, also, thank you for staying in for this last lecture of the morning. I know it's uh, been a long morning, so I appreciate you hanging in there. Um, Dr. Cohen prepared a presentation with some great cases from Boston that will allow me to uh, do a little clinical pathologic correlation, which is what dermatopathologists like me who are clinicians enjoy doing. It gives us our fix of clinical work for a while that we don't often get when we're in the laboratory day after day, so it's fun to see patients in a way. Um, but it also allows me a chance to help clinicians understand what goes on between the time you put that piece of tissue in a bottle of formalin and the time you get the paper back with the diagnosis. So there, many cases are very routine and run-of-the-mill, but these are some great cases that require a little more thought and work on our part to give you a good diagnosis. And we'll move on now. Let's see. So case one, we'll present this in sort of an interactive format. I'm going to present some clinical information, show you the pathology, and then ask for um, ideas from you as to what your diagnosis might be, and then we'll talk about how we come to that diagnosis. So the first case is an 83-year-old man with a pearly plaque on his nose, and the initial biopsy showed that it was indeed a basal cell carcinoma. His only past medical history of significance was that he had prostate cancer, which was in remission. And on the biopsy, oops, sorry. Is it not advancing? Okay. <laughs> okay, there we go. Sorry about that. Um, so on the tip of his nose, you can see a crusted pearly plaque, which is, had some surrounding erythema a little higher magnification here um, as they delineated the excision uh, margins. And on the biopsy findings, we have an, a little shave biopsy in which you see this uh, neoplasm invading the dermis comprised of small basophilic cells which are very crowded. There's peripheral palisading of the nuclei and there's some stromal mucin. I don't know if there's a pointer that would be available. Is it on here? Sorry. I don't see anything. The top button? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so the, the infiltrating islands of dark basophilic cells and some stromal mucin was seen, and those are characteristic findings of a basal cell carcinoma. So that's not surprising. Um, and then they continued to do the excision uh, again, a higher power uh, of the same tumor. 
So the re-excision showed that the basal cell was completely excised, but there was something unexpected in that biopsy, in the excision that is, and that was a second tumor was found. So this is the excision specimen, and what first catches your eye is that there is a lot of sebaceous gland hyperplasia, which is not unusual for the location, uh, the anatomic site on the nose. But also in the background, there, you can start to see that there's a lot of cells that don't really belong there. Um, on higher magnification, these cells um, uh, look rather pleomorphic. They have a high nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio and very dark hyperchromatic nuclei. Some variability in the nuclear size, and many of them on higher magnification have uh, prominent nucleoli. And you can see that it does extend down to the deep margin of the excision specimen. So it's a pretty infiltrative neoplasm. Higher magnification, you can again see the pleomorphism in the cells, the large nuclei with prominent nucleoli. And there, you can start to see that there's actually some glandular formation, which is a big clue to the diagnosis here, or at least helps you to narrow down uh, your differential diagnosis. These small areas are forming glands. And in particular, this is a characteristic finding called a signet ring cell. And that's very typical um, for several different types of uh, uh, malignancies in the adenocarcinoma family. So this is, uh, gives a signet ring characteristic pattern on, and on higher magnification. Again, striking pleomorphism of the cells with large nucleoli and uh, small amounts of cytoplasm in relation to the size of the nucleus. And again, the prominent signet ring formation, these holes here in the and glandular formation. So we bring out our armamentarium of special stains and what we call our magic markers, our immunoproxase stains, to help us delineate what type of tumor this would be. And one of the special stains we use is a mucicarmine stain. And you can see there's some focal positivity uh, indicating that there is some mucin produ production by these cells. Um, then we do a pancytokeratin immunoperoxidase stain, which demonstrates that this is uh, positive, and you can see again that outlines the cells nicely, indicating that the cells do produce keratin, so they're of an epithelial nature, so it's a carcinoma rather than a sarcoma. So we're narrowing down our diagnosis here. Um, a couple of other stains we use, epithelial membrane antigen is also positive, which can sometimes be seen also uh, some internal control in your um, sebaceous glands. CEA, which is carcinoembryonic antigen, is also positive, and um, that's another clue that can kind of narrow down to several classes of adenocarcinomas. Um, I don't want to give it away yet, so I won't tell you exactly what that is. Um, cytokeratin 7 stain, cytokeratin 7 is a low molecular weight cytokeratin, and that uh, is helpful in distinguishing different types of primary adenocarcinomas from secondary or metastatic adenocarcinomas. So that's an important clue. And then cytokeratin 20 stain was negative. So with that panel of findings, does anyone have any idea of what your diagnosis would be? So we know it's an adenocarcinoma. So our first quandary is to figure out, is it metastatic or is it primary? And our second quandary is, is it, if it's metastatic, where is it coming from? Because we need to give the clinician clues as to where to look for the malignancy. Obviously, they're going to need to have a pan uh, workup, but that would be helpful to know if they had an idea of where to start. So with this panel of immunoproxidase stains, it's more likely a metastatic lesion because the CK, 
20 staining was negative and CK7 was positive. If they were both positive, it would be considered to be more likely to be a primary adenocarcinoma of the skin. But with CK20 being negative, it's probably metastatic. The other clue that we had was that the CEA and the EMA were positive staining, as was the Musicarmin stain. And those can narrow down to your adenocarcinoma groups, including breast and GI. So this patient had a metastatic gastric carcinoma. So imagine that. You excise the basal cell carcinoma, and you find out he's got gastric cancer. So it's quite unusual to see this. Um, metastases to the skin are overall relatively rare, um, but GI metastases are uh, probably one of the least common. Um, they obviously are a poor prognostic sign. Uh, it's an ominous prognosis when you have metastases to the skin. They usually occur via either vascular or lymphatic spread, uh, depending on the tumor type, and sometimes even by direct extension, in particular with breast carcinoma. Uh, we often get uh, direct extension from the underlying primary tumor. Um, the underlying primary tumor depends on the gender, and we'll go through a list of what's more common in males versus females in a minute. And the site of presentation is often a clue to the primary tumor, too, and we'll go over some different uh, differences in the tumors. In males, by far and away, lung cancer is the most common. Um, colon and melanoma are relatively common, and um, as is oral squamous cell carcinoma, less likely the um, other types, of the renal, gastric, and esophageal. Um, in females, it's strikingly weighted in terms of breast cancer. Uh, breast cancer is by far and away, again, the majority of uh, metastatic tumors in females, followed by colon and melanoma, and less likely ovarian and cervical. The site of metastasis is often a clue as to the underlying primary, too. Uh, you're all familiar, I'm sure, with systemary Joseph's nodule. It's usually an umbilical uh, metastasis uh, from an underlying intra-abdominal tumor. Often it can be GI but it also can be a GU, endometrial or bladder uh, cancer as well. Uh, if it's on the chest wall, it's uh, largely gonna be a breast cancer. Face and neck uh, metastases are often from oral squamous cell carcinomas. And if it's an extremity, it's often a melanoma. And those, will, we'll see some um, pictures of this. They often are in sun-exposed sites if it's a metastatic melanoma. Um, the scalp, though, can be kind of a mishmash of different sites. So it can be uh, breast, lung, or renal are the most common sites. So it's not too helpful if it's on the scalp. It's, it's gonna be, um, you're gonna have to do your full workup anyway. So this is a, a two clinical pictures of a cystomeria Joseph's nodule. Right in the umbilicus, you have a crested erythematous plaque or nodule, um, which usually indicates an underlying uh, intra-abdominal tumor. Uh, an example of breast metastases. Again, a big clue is that she has had a mastectomy there. Um, but you, can, you have to uh, biopsy to determine whether it's a carcinoma versus an infectious process or other infiltrative process. But likely, this is um, going to be a metastasis in this uh, clinical setting. Um, often, you have to worry, though, too, about a vascular neoplasm angiosarcoma in a patient who's had um, um, uh, and uh, who's had metas uh, sorry mastectomy, um, and this is an example of a metastatic melanoma. So he had diffuse melanosis as well, in addition to uh, individual lesions of uh, metastatic melanoma. 
the prognosis with cutaneous metastases is always very poor. It's a very ominous sign. Survival is usually only about six months after diagnosis or after um, uh, metastases have arisen. It's particularly poor in some primary tumors from the upper GI tract, the upper respiratory tract, the lungs, and the ovary. Okay, any questions on that? We'll move on to case number two. Uh, this was a 64-year-old male with a history of chronic lymphocytic leukemia for 15 years who had stable disease, was on no treatment. His last workup two years previously showed that he had, everything was fairly clear. Um, and, but over the last six months, he started noting more and more of these infiltrative plaques on his head and neck area, and he developed a leonine facies. So here's a picture of his clinical appearance, and again, most notably his eyebrows. He had really striking infiltrative plaques of his eyebrows, a little bit on his nose as well, and we'll see in a minute on his ears. And a bit of that leonine facies that you can see sometimes associated with carcinomatosis, but this is um, a different entity. Um, but that's another thing you would think about. Infiltrative diseases such as sarcoidosis would also be considered in the differential diagnosis. I've seen a patient with a similar presentation that had folliculotropic mycosis fungoides um, that was in these predominantly hair-bearing areas. His ears also showed some involvement with some erythematous plaques. And on his biopsy, um, we received a, a small shave biopsy, and if I, if I may at this point put in a plug, no pun intended, for uh, biopsy technique, um, when, especially if you're seeing infiltrative lesions that are, are, are thick and deep, and if an infiltrative process like lymphoma or a connective tissue disease or sarcoid or paniculitis is in your differential, it's best to get a, 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 either an incisional biopsy or a, a deep punch if you can. Uh, it's always so important for us to evaluate the whole architecture and especially to see the deep margin of processes so we can interpret um, best for you. B-cell lymphoma is typically what we call bottom heavy, um, but if we're not seeing the bottom part of the lesion, it's really hard for us to put all the pieces together. So um, a punch biopsy is, is um, ideal. <laughs> so this is a, an infiltrate of um, Fairly monomorphous blue cells filling the dermis. Uh, there seem to be two populations. These are small and very dark blue. And there's another population that are small but have a little bit of pink cytoplasm to them. So the small, these aggregates here are more likely lymphocytes because they don't seem to have much cytoplasm, whereas the ones with the uh, pink cytoplasm are the ones we're kind of interested in here. And again, at higher magnification, you can see that most of this, the pinker cells have um, a uniform uh, bright pink cytoplasm. They have a small nucleus, which is somewhat uniform. The nuclear uh, chromatin pattern is uniform. And it has an eccentric, the, the nucleus is placed eccentrically, so it looks like what we call a comet shaped. And that's a clue to the, um, excuse me, the, um, the uh, type of cell that this is. Uh, and I'll mention that in a minute, but again, on higher power, they're fairly monotonous, which is never a good sign with lymphocytic infiltrates if they're a fairly monotonous population, or if it's growing in sheets uh, like this is, rather than having a definite pattern of growth. We pulled out our magic markers on this one, too, and CD20 stain showed diffuse staining. This brown staining is a positive stain for immunoproxies for CD20, which marks your B cell population. CD3 staining was negative, which would have marked your T cells. 
Um, CD79A is another marker which uh, predominantly uh, decorates the mature B cells. So this indicates that it's a mature B cell population. Um, and on uh, inside 2 hybridization, all the cells demonstrated positive uh, staining for lambda light chain, whereas kappa light chain was negative. And we have the ability, as many of you I'm sure are aware, to do uh, gene rearrangement studies and um, all of these studies on paraffin-fixed tissue. Uh, only in the last 10 or 15 years have we been able to do that. We don't require fresh tissue anymore, but we can do gene rearrangement studies even on uh, the paraffin-fixed tissue. So any clues as to the diagnosis? Lymphoma, anyone? <laughs> okay. So this is a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, which is a fairly unusual lymphoma in terms of um, uh, any lymphoma, but particularly to be arising in the skin, it's very unusual. Uh, it's a very rare subtype of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, usually less than 2% of all non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Um, they arise from the plasma cells, which are the mature B cells. That's why the CD79A stain was positive. Um, and they're often associated with uh, plasma cells typically produce immunoglobulins. So these types of lymphomas that have tons of plasma cells often produce a hypergammaglobulinemia, like Waldenstone's macroglobulinemia, which leads to a hyperviscosity syndrome and, uh, clinically. It's a very slowly progressing disease, but it is incurable, as many of these low-grade indolent lymphomas uh, tend to be. Most common in Caucasian men in the seventh decade, and um, they, uh, the risk factors are monogamopathy, which is an asymptomatic elevated serum protein level, uh, but it does have an increased risk of myeloma. Often you'll see signs related to the organ infiltration by the tumor. Lymph nodes, liver, spleen, and bone marrow can all be involved. And if the bone marrow is involved, you'll uh, most often have a, uh, anemia associated with this. The patients often also have type B symptoms with fever, fatigue, and abdominal pain. And again, if they have the circulating IgM, they'll develop hyperviscosity with some abnormal bleeding. Um, a full staging workup is necessary to make sure that they don't have um, primary nodal disease or bone marrow involvement. Any questions on that? Yes. I'm sorry. Oh, the cell type? Well, the cell type of this tumor was the plasma cell, predominantly the plasma cell, which is a mature B cell, and those are the cells that produce the immunoglobulins. Um, uh, and so that was the cell, that's why you, you get the hyperviscosity syndrome, because it's producing particularly IgM immunoglobulin, because you have too many plasma cells in the tumor. From your formalin fixed tissue that you um, sent originally on the H&E, we can get, if, as long as there are enough cells present, they can get uh, gene rearrangement studies. Was that your question? Yeah, I didn't know if you prefer to have the extra sample for that, or that No, we can do it all in the one sample. So we can do all your immunoproxase studies, your, our routine H&E, and any other studies, like the gene rearrangement studies, all on that one biopsy. 
when I was in um, dermatology training, the, the, the request was always for, if you're looking for mycosis fungoides, do three biopsies from different sites. I don't know if people still um, uh, try to, to do that, but that was sort of the entrenched diagnosis because it's such a uh, difficult diagnosis to make and, and often, as you know, requires multiple biopsies over time. Um, but doing several biopsies from different sites is always most helpful for mycosis fungoides. That's a good question, and I think it varies from patient to patient, and, and at what point you actually see them. If they have the typical distribution, you know, the bathing trunk distribution of plaques, um, and the, uh, the, the typical uh, pattern of uh, the distribution, I think sometimes it can just be, it depends on the patient. We say usually biopsy every four to six months if it progresses uh, or persists. Um, we can still, even on a biopsy where the findings are very, very subtle, we can do gene rearrangement studies and they, can, they may still be positive. So if your clinical suspicion is high, I would request gene rearrangement studies even if the biopsy comes back as, um, even if they do immunoproxy studies and it doesn't show a clonal T cell infiltrate, it might be worthwhile just to do the gene rearrangement studies. Um, but if you give us three biopsies, we can usually pick the best one and get a greater yield that way. I can certainly take more questions afterward, too, if anybody wants to, to discuss them individually, but maybe because of the uh, time, we should keep moving. So uh, case three was an 82-year-old male with an erythematous patch in the inguinal fold and an otherwise unremarkable past medical history. And this is his clinical picture, and you can see it's a pretty uh, large plaque, doesn't seem to have any scale. But again, they, after scraping it and seeing that that's negative, um, uh, you would obviously move on to probably a biopsy to find out if this is some sort of infiltrative uh, process. And this is what they did, in fact. They, uh, the biopsy was a punch biopsy. And you can see there's uh, a lot of inflammation in the dermis, but you, you immediately look, too, at the epidermis and see that there are these aggregates of pale cells which are somewhat replacing the keratinocytes. The keratinocytes have more of a pink cytoplasm, so they stand out differently. These have more of a clear cytoplasm, and they're in, uh, somewhat replacing the epidermis in these large nests. You can see they're also involving the epithelium of a hair follicle here. Again, higher magnification. You can see they're forming nests in irregular uh, areas of these cells. A few areas show some single cells moving up through the epidermis in what we call a pagetoid fashion. Pagetoid fashion is just a, a descriptive term for the way the cells are infiltrating in sort of a single cell buckshot pattern throughout the epidermis. And that's something we see often in several different malignancies, this including um, um, sorry, uh, melanoma in situ is typically um, described as having a pagetoid growth of atypical melanocytes. Sebaceous carcinomas can also have a pagetoid growth pattern in the epidermis. And so in higher magnification, um, again, a, one 
typical finding in this, which is a clue to the main differential diagnosis, is that the sparing of the basal layer of the keratinocytes is very striking here. So they're not involved. So the neoplastic cells that are infiltrating the epidermis seem to be replacing the upper stratum spinosum, not the basal or keratinocytes on the whole. So we pulled out our armamentarium of special stains again, and mucicarmine um, was performed, and you can see the bright red staining in some of the cells, indicating that they're mucin-producing cells. Carcinoembryonic antigen, uh, again, delineates the nodules and nest of cells infiltrating the epidermis. Again, cytokeratin-7 is positive. Uh, epithelial membrane antigen was also positive giving us some more clues. And likely on this one, CK20 can show variable positivity. So um, as we compared to the earlier case, um, this one isn't quite as helpful uh, with CK20 to, to tell us whether it's metastatic or primary. Any thoughts on the diagnosis in this case? Typically, three things should come to mind when you see a neoplasm involving the epidermis in which the cells are replaced by uh, the neoplastic cells. One would be squamous cell carcinoma in situ, or Bowen's disease. The other would be melanoma in situ. And the final is Paget's disease, or extra mammary Paget's disease. And that's what this case is, extra mammary Paget's disease. Um, all of those cells, all of those disease, uh, neoplasms can be involved the full thickness of the epidermis without involvement of the, uh, the dermis or infiltration of the dermis. Patches disease typically, as you know, presents as an eximitous eruption on the nipples or the areola of women, and essentially 100% of these patients have an underlying breast cancer. It can be an invasive cancer or an inside two cancer, um, and it's usually a, a very a classic presenting sign. Um, usually the, excuse me, there's usually a, a weeping scaly eruption on the nipple or the areola, um, and usually the clinical information is roulette eczema. It's a very classic um, uh, uh, presentation. Extra mammary Paget's disease presents in apocrine rich areas outside of the breast area. They're still more common in females, particularly in the vulvar and perianal sites, usually in the six to eighth decades. But we've seen them described in men as well, as in the penis, the scrotum, the axilla, and the umbilicus. And recurrence is very common. They're very difficult to treat. Um, usually it's a wide excision, um, but recurrence is common, mostly because it does involve probably some underlying glandular structures that are not removed in the primary excision. Uh, most cases spread from an in situ tumor derived from the intraepidermal sweat duct or the acrosyringium, and it's usually apocrine in nature. It can rarely present uh, via spread to the skin from an epidermotropic uh, tumor and 15% of these patients have an internal uh, disease, internal malignancy. Again, we bring out our special stains that we showed earlier, um, and that's how we come to that diagnosis. If it were uh, melanoma in situ, S100 or Mark one immunostains would have been positive rather than the um, epithelial uh, indicating cells uh, stains. If it were squamous cell carcinoma in situ, uh, the cytokeratin stains would have been positive, but the CEA and the EMA would not have been positive. So that's how we distinguish those. Okay, case four is a 13-year-old healthy girl who developed some painful inflammatory nodules for six weeks after a trip to Costa Rica. And you can see here on her buttock, she has an erythematous nodule on her, um, this is on the, with expression, they were able to extrude something. 
And on the posterior scalp, she has another one here, a little bit of an erythematous spot there. And this is a little telling here. Uh, I don't know if you're all are close enough to see it, but this is what came out. So we have an entomologist at Harvard School of Public Health, Dr. Richard Pollock, who does, uh, who, excuse me, identifies all of our bugs for us. And he identified this based on some criteria of the pattern of the spiracular plates on the, on the organism and the curved hooks on the back of the body. And does anybody have any idea what this is? Botfly, right. This is a human botfly, Dermatobia hominis. This is the, the fly who lays their eggs on a mosquito, typically. And when the mosquito feeds, um, the, uh, the eggs hatch and burrow into the skin. And the larvae uh, enter the skin and mature in the subcutaneous tissue. The, they attach to the skin by two anal hooks and then burrow into the skin. Treatment is typically surgical excision, but you can also do some um, interesting things like a, put adhesive tape or an ointment or even raw meat on the surface and let it come out on its own. Um, they say you should never try to pull it out because you may cause a secondary infection. So anyway, <laughs> that'll wake you up. <laughs> um, case number five. Uh, the clinical history is a five-year-old healthy boy with alopecia who also had what looked like cradle cap, and he had a twin sister, but she was not affected. Uh, they tried treating it uh, like you, you typically treat uh, cradle cap uh, with some improvement, but not uh, complete resolution. He had a normal TSH, uh, slightly low iron, and KOH and cultures were negative. Uh, on physical exam, a few hairs pulled out easily, just like you're pulling hairs through butter. And they also treated with fluosinolone, 0.1% uh, with some improvement of the seborrheic dermatitis. So we seem to have two things going on, just the seborrheic dermatitis as well as the hair abnormality. And these type patients say historically that you, they never have to get a haircut. Their hair just never seems to grow. A few clinical pictures. And this was what we got from a hair pull. Um, so we have an antigen hair here, and you have sort of a the cuticle, it looks a little funny in this, and then higher power, you can see it a little bit better. It's what we call ruffling of the cuticle, or as uh, I was taught, it looks like a woman whose pantyhose are too big. They kind of, um, <laughs> they kind of uh, pull down there and ruffle, it looks like your pantyhose are falling down. So anyone have a diagnosis? No? This is loose antigen hair syndrome. And it's, it's an unusual disease, but it's a non-scarring, non-inflammatory alopecia. Most often occurs in females of, with blonde hair, but can sometimes be seen in boys with dark hair as well. And they have very fine hair that never just seems to grow. It does improve with age, but um, it's this, uh, it, they just have this ruffled cuticle, and they don't have an internal or external root sheath on their hair. So all, typically, a hair pull is all you need to do to diagnose this, and it has that Again, that ruffling or, or uh, corrugated look to the cuticle. Sorry, I keep touching that. Case number six, a 10-year-old boy who had hyperpigmented eruption since the age of five and keratosis pilaris on his cheeks, and he had a twin brother who had similar lesions. Um, the parents didn't have any history of skin diseases, and he was otherwise healthy, just had this what people often call a dirty appearance, like they haven't bathed, but they have just this dark, Pigmentation and scaliness around the um, neck and face are common sites, as well as the extensor extremities. And again, his brother 
had a similar eruption, similar distribution on the neck and chin and around the face. And on biopsy, they did a nice little punch biopsy, and the epidermis looks relatively unremarkable, a little bit of what we call papillomatosis. One thing you notice is that there is a bit of a thickened granular cell, uh, excuse me, a thickened stratum corneum, which is um, unusual for this degree of uh, thickness of the epidermis. Again, somewhat thickened uh, stratum corneum, but it's a normal keratin, it's not parakeratotic. And on higher magnification, you can see there might be slight thickening of the granular cell layer right in here, a few too many cells there. Any thoughts, any diagnosis? So the brother's affected, and it's mainly a problem of the stratum corneum. Pardon? Exlinctic theosis. So this is an unusual condition, also known as steroid sulfatase deficiency. So it's a genetic disorder, sometimes also called ichthyosis nigricans. Um, so it typically occurs only in males because it's X-linked, recessive, and they get the large dark scales on the trunk, the extensor extremities, and the head and neck. Uh, they have this dirty appearance like they haven't bathed, uh, but it has no effect on the other uh, uh, keratin in the body, the hair, teeth, or nails. The uh, steroid sulfatase is a microsomal enzyme. Uh, they may also have an elevated serum cholesterol sulfate. And what happens is it's a disorder where they can't desquamate. So the lipid content of the cells is increased so that it, the keratin of the stratum corneum is more adhesive and it can't uh, desquamate. And that's this type of ichthyosis. Whereas other ichthyoses or more hyperproliferative processes, this type is more of a retention problem of the uh, stratum corneum. The biopsy findings are usually fairly minimal, so clinical information on this disease is very important. Knowing that it's a male and knowing that the twin is affected and, um, and the distribution of the eruption is very helpful for the pathologist to, to make the diagnosis. Case number seven is a 48-year-old otherwise healthy woman who has a history of melasma and she's used oral contraceptives in the past and has also for three years been using uh, hydroquinone topically to try to treat her hyperpigmentation or her melasma. But she noticed it was worsening. And a couple of clinical pictures, she's got particularly on the uh, uh, male prominences here, she's got this dark pigmentation, almost a little bit of slate gray in some areas and, dark, and brown. And so a biopsy was taken of this and otherwise um, normal looking epidermis, but when you look in the dermis, you see something catches your eye, these dark brown, coppery, um, curvilinear structures in the dermis. Very typical for this disorder. Um, so they are thought to be damaged collagen bundles that have this hyperpigmentation. So anybody have? Ochronosis, right. This is ochronosis, very typical. In this case, it's exogenous ochronosis or pseudo-ochronosis due to the topical hydroquinone um, um, uh, application overuse of the, uh, the bleaching agents. It most commonly occurs um, in African-American women uh, applying uh, bleaching creams to the face, but you can see it in, in other uh, races as well. And then you get the slate gray patches uh, again, it's most common on the bony prominences, malar forehead, temple, and jawline areas. As opposed to the uh, endogenous ochronosis, 
they, they typically have the same histology, histologic appearance, and uh, the endogenous ochronosis is usually secondary to alcaptonuria. Okay, case eight. Clinically, this was a 35-year-old male who had a rash over his extremities and trunk for one week. He had been on no medications and was otherwise healthy. And on uh, physical examination, he had these somewhat linear um, follicular and non-follicular erythematous papules. It almost looked like it was a kebnerized process because of the linearity to it and on his back. So it was fairly widespread. And so there's no real history to this, but Dr. Cohen thought this was such an unusual case that we wanted to present it. Um, this, and there's nothing distinctive uh, clinically about this either, but it's just an interesting case. This was called shiitake dermatitis. And shiitake dermatitis was described by Nakamura in 1977, and it's caused by the ingestion of the shiitake mushrooms, where you have this lentinous uh, edodes, which is a component uh, of the shiitake mushroom that has an anti-tumor, antifungal, antiviral effects. And a similar eruption has also been described with bleomycin treatment. And it's most commonly reported in Japan. And you get these linear urticarial papules and papula vesicles. And it's thought to be a hypersensitivity reaction or maybe toxic epidermal damage. So it's just a, a curious case. Okay, case number nine is a 79-year-old male with thick erythematous plaques on the neck. Initially, he had a vesicular component to the eruption, so the clinician wanted to rule out herpes virus infection. Um, but the viral cultures were negative, and so they did a biopsy with the clinical information that rule out viral versus lymphoma versus sweets. Sorry, we're advancing too fast. So on this patient, you can see on his neck, he had several indurated uh, erythematous plaques with surface ulceration. Pretty, pretty impressive, um, and you can see why sweets was in the differential, but other infiltrative disorders would also be considered lymphomas, um, sarcoid, uh, and the like. So a biopsy was taken, which showed a diffuse uh, infiltrate throughout the dermis of these dark blue cells. On higher power, you can start to appreciate they're very pleomorphic and, and very polymorphous. In other words, there are very different sizes and shapes of cells throughout the lesion. You have some that are enormous cells here and dark, and then a, a, a nice background of uniform light uh, smaller cells like lymphocytes. Again, on higher magnification, you can see the tremendous pleomorphism of these cells and how strikingly atypical they are. This is not good. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier how the monomorphic nature of some lymphoid populations is concerning, but in a case like this where you have such variability, such atypical cells, that's always bad too. So it's, um, it goes both ends of the spectrum here. Um, again, on higher magnification yet, you still have cells with these enormous nucleoli, large nucleus, and a lot of cytoplasm. So we pull out our magic markers again, and uh, CD3 indicates that these have a T cell, excuse me, a T cell uh, nature. So these are abnormal T cells infiltrating the skin. And CD30 stain was also positive. Although all the cells don't stain with CD30, a large number of them do. They're also noted in aggregates and clusters, which is not a good sign. On higher magnification, you can uh, see that especially these, the large atypical cells that we saw earlier are also highlighted by the CD30 stain. 
Now, CD30 can decorate some cells in a reactive infiltrate. For instance, bug bites can sometimes have CD30 positive cells. But when you have this many and this uh, clustering and aggregates of the CD30 positive cells, it's usually indicative of a CD30 positive lymphoproliferative process. Um, CD15 stain is a stain that we do, excuse me, and um, which if it were positive would be concerning for, does anybody know what that would be concerning for? For cutaneous Hodgkin's disease. Um, if CD15 were positive, that usually uh, indicates uh, Hodgkin's disease, which is extraordinarily rare. Um, anyway, so this one, the diagnosis, I think I've already given it away, is a CD30 positive lymphoproliferative disorder. Now this is a spectrum of disease, which includes lymphomatoid papulosis, I think everyone's familiar with that, uh, primary cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma, secondary cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma, usually arising in the background of LYP or mycosis fungoides. Uh, some people might consider that transformed mycosis fungoides. When it transforms into the tumor stage or, not, or beyond, you get a CD30 positive predominance or uh, secondary cutaneous involvement from a primary nodal anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So this, spectrum of, of, uh, this is a spectrum of CD30 positive disorders. Lymphomatoid papulosis has always been considered a benign self-healing eruption, but now it's more likely classified as an indolent lymphoma because, uh, excuse me, sorry, 10 to 20% will progress to a more aggressive lymphoma either a CD30 positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma or a cutaneous T cell lymphoma, and rarely Hodgkin's lymphoma as well. It's more common in males by two to one, and lymphomatoid papulosis presents as crops of asymptomatic papules which become hemorrhagic and necrotic with time, and they heal eventually with atrophic scars. Histologically, we have three subtypes of, of lymphomatoid papulosis. Type A is the most common. It's the classic where you have a pattern similar to what we saw this histology of a moment ago. Um, the second pattern, type B, has a mycosis fungoides-like pattern. And type um, C is the anaplastic large cell lymphoma type um, of pattern. Uh, and the differential diagnosis clinically of lymphomatoid papulosis uh, will include pleva, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, and a bug bite. Primary CD30 positive lymphomas usually require at least 75% of the cells to stain with CD30 uh, on our immunohistochemical stains. And usually when that is present, it's usually a pr pretty good prognostic sign. Um, CD30 positive primary uh, large cell lymphomas usually uh, affects males in the seventh decade. And it's usually a solitary or a few localized lesions. You wouldn't have widespread lesions as you would in lymphomatoid papulosis. 40% of these can partially regress, uh, but 40% can recur. So it's very variable disease in terms of uh, prognosis and the biology. Five-year survival, though, is very good with 90% surviving at five years. And uh, the large majority of them are type A pattern histologically. Any questions about that? A lot of people will do just excisions if it's a solitary primary cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Um, if it's widespread disease, they probably need a referral to an oncologist. Um, probably wouldn't be a bad idea to refer them to an oncologist anyway because a large number of them will progress. Okay, case number 10 uh, is an 80, excuse me, 65-year-old healthy man with a history of a, a large enlarging lesion on the back. 
It was a firm red-brown papule that came in with a clinical diagnosis of Merkel cell versus lymphoma cutis versus basal cell versus dermatofibroma, and he was otherwise healthy. So here's our clinical uh, photo. Uh, right here on the flank, he has this plum-colored nodule and a positive biopsy sign. And on his biopsy, again, he had diffuse infiltration of the whole dermis by an atypical infiltrate of cells. So to determine the nature of those, we'll look a little higher. A lot of the cells you'll see kind of have a bit of a foamy cytoplasm. So they're probably histiocytes largely, um, but there's also an admixture of smaller lymphocytes in the background. Um, the cells appear to be um, also in some areas gobbling up some of the other cells. So this large histiocyte here is gobbling up some scattered lymphocytes. There's another one here. Some of these are multinucleated cells, but some of these are being ingested by this large macrophage, a process called imperipoesis, which is classic for this entity um, here. Again, some more imperipoesis. These cells are just being gobbled up by the large histiocytes. So we do our magic markers again, and uh, the cells are positive for S100. These very large macrophages are positive for S100 immunostain. So does anyone know what this entity is? I think I heard Rosei-Dorfman disease. This is cutaneous Rosei-Dorfman disease, a very, very rare cutaneous um, a disease, which is uh, also known as sinus histiocytosis with massive lymphadenopathy. Uh, this, again, is more common in males, uh, most common in the first two decades, and they get large and uh, massive nodes in the cervical area. They'll often have B symptoms with fever, night sweats, some uh, neutrophilia or leukocytosis, and an elevated sed rate. And uh, uh, most of them are single lesions, but uh, they can sometimes be multiple. And they'll often undergo spontaneous regression, but clinically, the, or sorry, histologically, the differential diagnosis would be a xanthoma, Langerhans cell histiocytosis or reticulohistiocytosis. But this is a very, uh, very rare disease, but it's um, a quite characteristic histologically. Okay, case number 11. As a 49-year-old woman with painful lesions on the lateral aspects of her fingers, uh, with the clinical impression that we had of Pernio versus Pomphalox versus Janeway lesions versus other, and her past medical history was uh, unknown otherwise. And on biopsy, you can tell it's an acral biopsy because of the marked thickening of the um, stratum corneum. But you see this large uh, collection of cells uh, in the epidermis. On higher power, you can see that the cells are smaller than all the lymphoid cells we saw earlier. These are actually neutrophils. So you have a large abscess or pustule in the epidermis. And you can see these bluish areas here. We'll look at those a little higher. And um, those are what we want to focus on. But this is just a massive infiltrate of neutrophils. Um, we did some special stains, which is, this is our brown and hops is our uh, tissue gram stain. And these organisms were highlighted with that. So it's a bacterial organism with gram-positive cocci in this large pustule. Again, a little higher power of the gram-positive cocci. So any thoughts on their diagnosis? Sorry, <laughs> keep forgetting. This is an Osler's node, secondary to endocarditis. So um, 
the clinician was, was right on target because Janeway lesions were in the differential diagnosis as well, which are also associated with subacute bacterial endocarditis. But Janeway's lesions are typically palms and soles, whereas Oso's nodes are uh, more commonly on the uh, red painful nodules on the hands and feet, more often on the lateral surfaces. Um, and we think that they're due to, uh, in early lesions, due to acute microemboli of the septic um, organisms, as in this case, because we had a large pustule with organisms in it. Uh, later in the disease, you might get immune complex deposition, more of a hypersensitivity vasculitis uh, histology. Differential diagnosis would include lupus, disseminated GC, uh, morantic endocarditis, and a, a distal infection secondary to an infected catheter. And there are some clinical photos of these painful nodules on the fingertips and on the lateral edges in particular. And so that's um, Osler's nodes. Case 12 is a six-week-old boy with 25 purple papules and nodules in a widespread distribution on, on the, the body. And he was born with a platelet count, which was close to zero. So the clinical impression, and this clinical picture gives you sort of the blueberry muffin baby syndrome look, would include hemangioma versus metastatic neuroblastoma versus leukemia cutis, and also extramedullary hematopoiesis can present this way as well. This is one um, picture, a, a reddish nodule, looks like on the scalp, another one on the ear. And the biopsy, they did a nice deep punch biopsy. And in this part, I think this is just hemorrhage, but down here you also see the extravasated red cells, but also a cellular proliferation, which we'll concentrate on. Um, and this is actually a vascular proliferation. So you have a, uh, an abnormal vascular proliferation deep in the dermis, uh, and that's probably where the hemorrhage came from. And taken together with this clinical picture, the diagnosis of this case was neonatal diffuse hemangiomatosis. This is an unusual disease where you get multiple cutaneous hemangiomas as well as visceral hemangiomas. With the visceral hemangiomas, you might get AV shunting. Um, it can involve the liver, spleen, the central nervous system, and the lungs. And unfortunately, the high output cardiac failure can occur with the, um, with the visceral disease. You could also get the thrombocytopenia as he had with, um, with hemorrhage. And if they're widely disseminated, um, they can be in the hundreds of lesions, and they usually present at birth or in the first few weeks of life. A large of, a majority of these with the visceral involvement will die within the first few days because of the high output failure and or the pulmonary or CNS complications. Systemic corticosteroid uh, treatment is often helpful, and sometimes they'll do a hepatic artery ligation. Uh, if there's no internal involvement, it's just a benign cutaneous neonatal hemangiomatosis is, would be the diagnosis. And case 13 is an 89-year-old woman with asymptomatic lesions on the left knee, and the clinical impression was vasculitis versus cutaneous larva migraines, which you think is kind of an unusual differential. But when you see the picture, you'll kind of understand why. She actually had a significant livido pattern, uh, which indicates a vascular probably a vascular problem going on. But also she had some that look almost a little excoriated and um, linear. And on biopsy, the findings were relatively nonspecific. Um, you, you do see some damage to the stratum corneum and damage to the epidermis with an inflammatory infiltrate. But the vessels look fairly um, intact. There's no obvious vasculitis. With a livido pattern of vasculitis, too, uh, I mean, with a livido pattern of um, 
presentation of vascular problems, it's often the deeper vessels that are involved as well. But there was, there was no uh, polyodoritis, no dose, or no deep vasculitis in this patient. But that would be something to consider clinically in selecting your biopsy uh, mechanism uh, for a patient with libido. So the, the uh, inflammation and the uh, damaged and repaired epidermis are the, really the only findings you see in this. So it's fairly nonspecific histology, but based on the clinical information, the clinical picture, and the histology, the diagnosis was erythema ab igni, which apparently has seen a resurgence lately with laptop dermatitis. <laughs> apparently, um, everybody using the laptop and the, the heat that uh, are coming from the laptops, they're starting to see more of this on the thighs. But in the past, it was often occupational-induced or people using hot water bottles or heating pads more often. But it's due to prolonged and recurrent exposure to heat. Uh, lower than that would be to cause a burn, but just the warmth um, causes this reticulated erythema, hyperpigmentation, telangiectasias, atrophy, and scaling. So the shins, thighs are the common locations for this. And unfortunately, these, um, this damage to the skin increases the risk of premalignant and malignant lesions, such as squamous cell carcinoma and Merkel cell carcinoma. And again, just a few pictures of the reticulated erythema associated with erythema abigni, so the lace-like pattern. Okay, and last case, and sorry, I'm kind of going fast because I know you're on a schedule. Uh, this is a 55-year-old male with one week history of numerous circular gyrate plaques on the trunk and extremities. He had a red, red raised advancing border with central clearing, mild pruritus, and he also had onychodystrophy, but otherwise was healthy. So you can see these large expanding gyrate um, uh, plaques with an advancing edge. Not much scale. So the biopsy here did a nice punch, which we see most of the action is only in the superficial dermis. Largely around vessels, you have this tight perivascular inflammatory infiltrate of lymphocytes, what we typically call cuffing of lymphocytes around the vessels. Again, tight hyperchromatic lymphocytes. Occasionally with this disorder, if it's a superficial type, there's a superficial type and a deep type. In the superficial type, you sometimes can get some alteration of the epidermis, and here you have some vaculopathy of the basal layer, but you don't want to be confused that you're in a category of an interface dermatitis like lupus. Um, this is just sort of a secondary finding. So based on the histology and the clinical picture, um, you might think of other of the gyrate erythemas or granuloma annulari. And with that histology, it was erythema annulari centrifugum, so EAC uh, was the diagnosis. And the other clue we had earlier was that his toenails were also affected with onychomycosis. Um, and here's the nail biopsy with a PAS, and you can see the organisms, the hyphae throughout the, they're kind of a fuchsia colored throughout the nail plate. And three weeks post lamisil treatment, he was almost completely cleared. EAC generally uh, is associated with um, infections that can be parasitic, fungal, viral, bacterial, sometimes connective tissue disease, uh, sarcoidosis, hypereosinophilic syndrome, or sometimes an underlying malignancy. But most of the times there's no, no um, etiology found or it's, uh, it's unclear. Um, it can affect all age groups. Lower extremities is the most common site and they often have a peripheral eosinophilia. Uh, typically they have the trailing scale rather than the advancing scale. 
and that's a distinguishing feature with others, uh, papillosquamous uh, dermatitides. They can last, it can last months to years, and as I mentioned earlier, there's a superficial and deep variance. Um, and that just is a matter of the, the histology. It doesn't have anything to do with the clinical picture. So that's a very typical um, case, and that's it. So thank you.